Hello, everyone, and welcome to CPPR's podcast series, Policy Beyond Politics. I am Purvaja Modak, Research Fellow for International Relations Geoeconomics at CPPR. In these podcasts, we will be discussing new and crucial developments in the field of international relations, law, geoeconomics, and global governance, and we'll hear interesting insights from our in-house and external research scholars. Today, I have with me Dr. Harishankar Satyapalan. Hari is an assistant professor at the School of Legal Studies, Cochin University of Science and Technology in Kerala. He is a research fellow for international law and dispute settlement at CPPR. The topic of today's podcast is particularly important since we hold environmental issues very close to our heart. We also recently celebrated World Environment Day on June 5th, 2021. So there couldn't be a more opportune time to take up this discussion. Welcome to this podcast, Harry. So in a landmark ruling rendered last week, a Dutch court ordered the Royal Dutch Corporation and all other entities that jointly formed the Shell Group to cut their carbon dioxide emissions by a net 45% by the end of 2030, compared to 2019 levels. This is also in line with commitments made to the Paris Climate Agreement of 2015. The verdict resulted from a public interest lawsuit by a group of environmental NGOs led by the Netherlands-based Friends of the Earth, or Milieu de France. They claimed violations of domestic and international law governing climate change and human rights. The decision is historic and will set a precedent for climate change litigation around the world, since it is the first time that a multinational company was found liable for deficient climate policy. The case also demonstrates the growing importance of domestic courts in addressing more significant global environmental governance issues. So, Hari, can you tell us more about this ruling? In what way does it tie in with the commitments made to the Paris Climate Agreement at COP21? Over to you, Hari. Thank you, Puvaja, for having me on this podcast. Indeed, it is a groundbreaking judgment in many ways. This is the first judgment of its kind in which a multinational corporation was held responsible for its climate policy. In this case, uh, against the Royal Dutch Corporation, a class action suit was brought by a group of more than 17,000 individuals and seven environmental NGOs, including the Greenpeace, led by the Milieu Defense, or the Friends of the Earth chapter of the Netherlands, before a district court in The Hague. And the court basically found that the total emissions, carbon emissions of the Shell Group exceeded that of many countries, including the Netherlands. And these emissions contribute significantly to climate change in a particular region of the Netherlands. And the court ordered the shell group of companies, uh, which includes all its uh, legal entities and subsidiary companies, to reduce its carbon emissions into the atmosphere by at least 45 percentage by the end of the year 2030, compared to its emission rates in 2019. And this verdict it can also be compared with an earlier decision of the same court uh, in the Urganda Foundation case, where the Republic of the Netherlands was found liable for its climate actions. And the difference between Urganda and this case is that in Urganda, it was against a state. And in this case, it is a corporation. It's particularly important in the context of the Paris Agreement, because the Paris Agreement, like any other international uh, instrument, talks of obligations of the state and not of persons or companies. But nonetheless, uh, the court pointed out the assurances of the signatory countries about the support of non-state actors as well. So this way, I think the court could extend the election obligations to business entities as well. 
The Paris Agreement aims to limit the global warming to 2 degrees Celsius, preferably 1.5 degrees Celsius by the mid of 21st century. However, a key point to be noted is that the temperature target is only the agreement's objective and cannot be treated as a mandatory requirement. So a strict application of this temperature target for a company is always questionable, and it has already been questioned by uh, scholars and other commentators. But one thing is for sure, the reduction of greenhouse gas emissions and the temperature targets of the Paris Agreement cannot be achieved by states alone. The actions of non-state actors, including the big oil companies like Shell, are very significant. And for the time being, we can only hope for the appellate courts, especially the Supreme Court of the Netherlands, to uphold its, this, this decision very soon. Thanks, Hari. So what I find interesting about this ruling is that for the first time, a non-state actor will be held accountable for climate action. In the past, only the state has had the responsibility to protect the environment and non-state actors, particularly companies, were only driven by one objective, which is maximizing profits. So for the first time now, minimizing impact on the environment will be on their targets as well. So I'm glad to see this change. In fact, I have also done some work in the past on natural capital valuation, which is another way of making companies understand the impact of their activities on the environment. That can be done by putting a monetary value or a price on the damage that their activities cause to the environment. Unfortunately, the study and practice of including the value of natural capital in a company's financial statements is taking place either on a voluntary basis or only by a few companies worldwide. This was a policy brief that I co-authored with Akshay Mathur and K.N. Vedyanathan, two eminent scholars in this field. It was submitted for the consideration of the G20 leaders under Japan's G20 presidency of 2019. So maybe this ruling from the Dutch court can encourage companies to introduce other initiatives to protect the environment as well. So coming back to you, Hari, other than a climate change violation, the public interest lawsuit claimed that it was a violation of human rights as well. Can you explain how and why that was the case? Well, uh, these are not contradictory, but they uh, complement each other. Climate change is a big threat to humanity and naturally to human rights as well. Every one of us has the fundamental right to enjoy a safe, clean and healthy environment. So violations of climate norms can result in human rights abuses. And this interface between climate law and uh, human rights law is not something very new. It's uh, universally recognized even by the United Nations Framework Convention on the Climate Change. In fact, according to the UN mandate, uh, states uh, are supposed to consider that human rights are the, at the core of climate governance. That means human rights law has many things to say about climate change. And uh, it, this, this interface gains more significance in the context of business. The duty of care, which the court applied in this case, is essentially a standard found in international human rights instruments. Of course, apart from the, the domestic tort law, meaning any lapse in the climate duty of care may result in the violation of human rights law. And in this particular case, the court examined the duty of care mentioned under the European Convention on Human Rights, specifically Articles 2 and 8, that offer protection against the consequences of dangerous climate change due to carbon dioxide emissions. And the court also made references to the practice of the UN Human Rights Committee and the UN Special Rapporteur on Human Rights. More interestingly, the court followed international soft law standards or instruments uh, such as the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, which are essentially non-binding. But using these uh, uh, instruments, uh, the court could interpret the standard of care. 
And I remember the court uh, uh, made a very important observation here. It's that the responsibility to respect human rights encompasses the company's entire value chain, which means it is not just the business operations in uh, you know, producing or refining the fossil fuel. The consumption of the products by the consumers also comes under this unwritten standard of care, which I think is a very important uh, takeaway of this case. Well, so maybe if issues like climate change are sensitized in this manner, they will probably be taken more seriously. So, Hari, uh, this case also demonstrates the growing importance of domestic courts in addressing global environmental governance issues. How are disputes on these issues being dealt with currently? Right. Uh, this is a crucial issue. Uh, if you look at the history of global governance structures, uh, everything is born out of crisis, whether it is the uh, United Nations organizations or the World Trade Organization, which are basically the products of the Second World War. And today we have uh, different fragments of global governance and uh, specialized courts and tribunals. There is no dearth of adjudicatory bodies at the international level. You take any uh, field of human activity at a, at a global stage, uh, it's usually governed by an organization and particularly a dispute settlement mechanism attached to it. For, for instance, we have uh, you know, robust adjudicatory and enforcement mechanisms in the field of economic law or global economic governance like that of the, the WTO dispute settlement body or the international arbitration mechanisms uh, for the investment protection. However, when it comes to global scale environmental problems like climate change regulation, there is no permanent structure or no international adjudicatory body for that matter. And this is despite the many kinds of global cooperation that exists today uh, to deal with environmental problems like the United Nations uh, you know, Environmental Program, UNEP. Although many international courts adjudicate matters related to the environment. For instance, uh, if you look at the, the, the jurisprudence of the International Court of Justice or the WTO Dispute Settlement Body and even the International Tribunal for Law of the Sea, they all uh, adjudicate matters relating to environment in a general sense. But the absence of a specialized environmental court or tribunal at the international level makes the compliance of climate norms difficult. So I think in this context, the role played by uh, domestic or national courts uh, is very critical to the implementation of such uh, norms. And interestingly, in this year itself, uh, there are about more than 50 climate litigations filed against uh, uh, governments and companies uh, before various dom domestic courts, including uh, constitutional claims against uh, uh, governments such as Italy. So I think uh, the contribution of uh, domestic courts in protecting the climate is uh, even more significant uh, today. Hari, maybe the work of scholars of international law like yourself will highlight the need for an international body to deal with such issues. My next question to you would be, how will this case push other multinationals around the world to get serious about their commitment to climate change? Has this case triggered any movement to that effect around the world? Well, I'm not particularly sure of the triggering effect of this judgment towards some more climate um, actions or litigations, uh, but no doubt this is a precedent-setting judgment, meaning that this ruling of the Dutch court will be a source of inspiration for many courts in uh, other jurisdictions as well. I'm sure there are many companies, especially from the fossil fuel industry itself, that are they are facing many trials in other jurisdictions. Even individuals and ministers have been found responsible for their climate actions. Uh, for instance, the Australian minister who was found liable uh, uh, by an Australian federal court uh, for uh, approving a coal mine project, uh, which I had mentioned in my article also. Moreover, there are there's another development which is uh, which is the 
idea of investor activism. For instance, the majority shareholders of big oil companies like Chevron, ExxonMobil, and Total, recently they have started pushing the corporations to take more positive and uh, measurable climate actions in their policies. So what I can say uh, for the time being is that the future of climate litigation and uh, climate justice looks really bright. Well, Hari, I echo your optimism and I feel that change is indeed around the corner. In fact, the chief executive of the Royal Dutch Corporation, Ben Van Borden, said just recently that the company will rise to the challenge put forth by the Dutch court and they will fast track their energy transition strategy to meet the committed targets. So do you think this will ensure that Indian companies will also take their commitments to climate change seriously in the future? Absolutely. So, so the decision is about the individual responsibility of a company, Shell. There is an important question of shared responsibility. So in other words, uh, being held liable in a climate life Climate litigation does not mean an actor alone is responsible for the entire global warming and the dangerous effects of climate change. There's a growing momentum globally to tackle the climate emergency. Therefore, it is quite sensible that the, the spillover effects of judicial like decisions like uh, uh, the Dutch court's decision uh, would be felt even in India, especially when we, when we have reports suggesting that many Indian companies are engaging in uh, greenwashing in their corporate policies. Moreover, the impacts are not going to be limited to just uh, judicial decisions. We can expect uh, more legislative changes and uh, shareholder actions to compel uh, you know, business enterprises to stop greenwashing and take uh, climate policies more seriously. But I'd like to mention one thing here, um, uh, which I was reading the other day about an investigative report uh, on the Supreme Court's judicial activism in environmental cases. Surprisingly, uh, there's a, uh, the, the investigation shows that uh, negative attitude by the Niti Aayog, which is the Indian government's think tank. And according to this report, the Niti Aayog has funded a research project that identified and uh, handpicked some of the recent pro-environment decisions of the Indian Supreme Court to expose its detrimental effects to the economy in a way uh, which sides with the corporate uh, policies or the uh, if, if, I, if I can put it, uh, the dirty corporate interests. So I'm not saying that a study or a research on the economic impacts of Supreme Court decisions is unwanted. However, this example shows the real attitude of a, of a government think tank and particularly of the authorities in the government in dealing with uh, environmental issues. Well, to be honest, the responsibilities of the government towards climate change and their attitude towards climate action is a topic for another podcast. But uh, with the hope that rulings like this will make multinational companies more accountable going forward, I'd like to thank Hari for sharing his views with CPPR. We look forward to hosting you again soon for another engaging discussion on your areas. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us. You can read an article that Hari has written on the subject on our website. A link is also provided in the description below. You can listen to all our podcasts on our social media accounts. Just type hashtag policy beyond politics podcast. For more research and content from CPPR, do log in to our website www.cppr.in, follow our work on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our updates on Telegram. Thank you, and we will be back again soon with many more interesting discussions with eminent scholars. Goodbye.